Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more will be explored together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla y la Dra. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Ricans, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we are joined by Pastor Gail Song Bantam and Dr. Brian Bantam to discuss their new book, Choosing Us, Marriage and Mutual Flourishing in a World of Difference. We asked them about death and love, confession and change, and how to read the stars. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Familia, welcome to the show. So good to be here. Thanks What's for having up? us. I gotta ask, uh, I know that you're a soccer fan, so I'm a little surprised to see the, the hardcore Duke repping, Dr. Bentham. I know no one else can see you, but but he's riding hard here. Look, we're at final four, man. Gotta, gotta represent. <laughs> uh, do you join him in that, Gail? Are you a big, are, are you gonna be repping Duke all day? Absolutely. Oh yeah, Absolutely. okay. All right, okay. The all times right. that we were there, those are the best years. <laughs> All right. Were you the were you the wait in line for a game kind of person, or were you the we we gonna rep from from where we're comfortable? From the couch. From the couch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard the lines are crazy at Duke. Let Let me ask. I ask all of our invited guests. You know, we're gonna be talking Spanglish here and there throughout. Talk to me about the Spanglish proficiency. How How well we doing here? Oh my gosh. I just I just go by context. So I'm like, oh, it sounds like that might be good. Sounds like that might not be so good. And I just go from there. Okay, okay. Well, at any point, Gil, you can you can hit us back with some Korean and leave us all sorts of sideways. Oh, so no, you I don't want me to. It can go both ways. <laughs> it can go both ways. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome to a mixed space, a space where we live in the hyphen. We say ni da ni da ya, not from here or from there. And we're excited you're joining us. This is the second episode of the third season of the Mestizo Podcast. So if you haven't been listening before, make sure to check out some of our previous episodes. We've got Willie Jennings, Sandra Maria Van Opstel, Robert Chad Romero, Nathan Cartagena. There's all sorts of great guests and conversations that you can jump into along the way. If you've missed it, World Outspoken just launched the merch store with designs that reflect the uniqueness of the Mestizo Church. Whether you want a t-shirt, hoodie, a baby onesie, tenemos un poquito de todo. My favorite is the recently released crew neck sweater, product of Abuela's prayers, celebrating the theology that we inherit from nuestras abuelitas. So ponte al día using the link on the show note or visit the homepage of worldoutspoken.com to get lo nuevo que está corriendo ahora en la calle. Shout out to Travi Joe for that saying. You can follow us on social media, at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have a question about the conversation that we're about to have with the Bantams, you can send that question in using 312-725-2995. You can leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll take it up at the end of the season. All right, Bantams, time to talk about your book, Choosing Us. Let's Let go. me say, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I think it's one of a kind. I've not seen a book like it that's dealing with the dynamics of of a, a marriage like the one I'm in. Uh, it's my wife's birthday today, by the way, so so I'm I'm especially mm -hmm. thinking about these dynamics. But I got to be honest, the book started in a really surprising, uh, surprising maybe somber way, and I thought we would start the show by following along the start of your book and the start of your story. Uh, because a mutual friend, as I understand it from the preface of the book, a mutual friend set you up, Gail, after you lost your mother, and not too long, uh, Brian, after you lost your father. It's a little weird to call you Brian, by the way, when I'm always calling you Dr. Bantam, <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that going. Um, then, then in page two of the book, right on the second page, we find out about, um, Gail, about the passing of your father. And so death comes up repeatedly from the start of the book, kind of as a sub-theme throughout. And so I, I want to ask, how does death change the trajectory of the way that you understand love and relationships? 
Uh, I think for me, um, especially experiencing death from a young age, I think I was 18 when my mother passed. Uh, my dad actually didn't pass until um, 2017, but there was a loss um, in the midst of being disowned for 20 years. But I, th I feel like death has a way of orienting and reorienting what matters. Uh, and sometimes it's, it, you know, when, when you're walking as a pastor, when you're walking with people at the end of their lives, um, there's a different conversation that's being had. It's no longer what are the things that, um, the frivolous things that we want to achieve or what we didn't do or what we didn't accomplish, but um, it's the relationships, it's the community, it's the tethering of our identities that I think um, has shifted what our relationship can be and should be. Now, does it happen all the time of being gracious, being um, being um, so deep and profound in everything we do and say to one another? No. But I think there is this notion of we are all we have and life is so much more precious and meaningful because we've experienced a, a very profound loss at such an early age. Brian? Yeah, I think um, there, there's, a certain, there's a certain kind of gratefulness, um, and I would, but I would also say maybe even fear that kind of is always lingering um, that kind of goes from day to day, you know, like, you know, you know, this, I, I, I bike a lot. So like, everything's a bike analogy, but you know, like after you've had like your first crash on a bike, you, you, you're immediately thinking of getting on, but when you're, when you're riding, you always know there's a possibility of crashing again, and, but you keep going, right? Because there's both an exhilaration of being there, but also, you know, it's going to really suck if, 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 it, if it happens, but you do it anyway. Um, and so I think in a weird kind of way, the, I think that's what, what this kind of possibility of death is. It's kind of an ever present. I mean, even now, I mean, if Gail is like a half an hour late and hasn't called or like, let me know that she's on my way. Like, and we, we communicate like all the time, like I'm going here, I'm going to be, I'm leaving now. I should be home 15 minutes. I landed, you know, I mean, all of those kind of points of departure and return, regardless of how big or how small, um, there's always something a little bit underneath it because, and as soon as, and if it goes a half an hour where I haven't heard from her, I'm like, already, I can actually feel it in my gut a little bit, a kind of worry about like, well, what, what if something happened? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that idea, like once you've lived with loss, you know what absence means. Um, mm. And and it just, and it kind of just hangs in the air all the time. Um, and it does create a kind of profound gratefulness for the person. But I think maybe even more is like, you know, you know what life without that person could mean and, and you don't want that. And so then, and especially when we get into arguments, when we get into frustrations, when we're in spaces where our life is, where we're, we're like really frustrated with one another, that that fear of being without that person, the prospect of absence is also there, um, which means that we work through those problems in a different kind of way, because there's no, there's no out, because we know that life together is essentially like all that we have. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so it's, so it's just kind of, kind of it's always there um, in lots of ways that are sometimes helpful, um, maybe sometimes not, because it's fear, fear isn't always a, the, a great motivator for, for yeah. things. It's helpful sometimes, but it's not always the, the most healthy. That's right. You know, Gail, you brought up something and Elizabeth, I see you, but I want to tease out here a difference you've made. You made a distinction between two kinds of death, right? Death in the natural mm -hmm. sense, but then you talked about the death that happened between you and your father. I think you used the language of disowning, if I'm not mistaken. Can, can you tell us, uh, for the sake of the context here, you know, the nature of that, what, what was the reason for that death there, the death of relationship that eventually was restored, uh, albeit mm -hmm. in some subtle ways of a conversation, but, but maybe talk mm -hmm. us through what, what that other sense of death is. And then we can engage in some conversation. Yeah, I think um, for my father, after experiencing loss of his wife, my mother, um, I, I met Brian, introduced Brian to him, 
and said, I think this is the guy I want to marry. And as a Korean man, he had a really hard time with Brian being black, with Brian um, not being the imagination, the vision of what he thought um, I, I would, like the kind of person I would be with. Um, and so that was, that was challenging because I know that there could have been another way. Um, but that wasn't mine to control. That wasn't mine to, um, you know, change his mind. Um, so it was hard. And the hardest part was asking me to choose. You could either stay with Brian or you can leave this house. Um, and it eventually turned into 20, 21 years of not being in relationship, not being at our wedding, not knowing our kids. Um, yeah, traumatic. Which then adds to the trauma of death, the other death as well. Death is, people don't realize that death is traumatic, that it causes PTSD. That what uh, you've been describing, Brian, is, you know, the effects of that PTSD, right? It's a different kind of PTSD, but it is. It is. Mm -hmm. I also experienced uh, losing my mom when I was 19. Mm -hmm. And, you know, much of what both of you have described, you know, does take place in one's life. What happens is that it creates a different lens that gives us perspective on life. Um, That's right. Okay, so we're fighting here. What's this fight really about? Because, you know, there's there's life. And we came together to uh, so that there could be life, so that there could be a flourishing life. So what's really important in this argument? Uh, what is it that we have to solve? And the way that we solve it has to be so that life can continue, Right. Because you realize how precious that really is. So it's a very different perspective. Uh, it moves you away from uh, selfish pieces. It moves you away from the frivolous. Uh, there is no time for that. There's a much deeper purpose, right? Yeah. And then the, the trauma of being disowned, that wasn't a choice. That was an ultimatum. That's right. Right. Let's let's make a, a difference between a choice and an ultimatum. Right. Because that really doesn't give you a choice. It's mm -hmm. just an ultimatum. Um, mm -hmm. You you lose either way. Mm. Right. You mm. lose right. either way. So either way that you that uh, you went, it was going to be a, a profound loss, and mm. it was another relational loss. Um, and yeah, there are cultural pieces to that, but there are also the pieces of his own unresolved uh, sense of loss. Um, right. Dealing with the sense of loss of the expectations of what life was supposed to look like going forward. He already lost his wife. Now he's losing his expectation of, of culture and of how relationship is so much connected to culture, right? Yes. And so he's lost that, and he's 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 lost. He's a lost person. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, I'm glad that after the years you were able to uh, figure some of those pieces out. But it's it's very difficult. It's and what's very interesting, yeah. And what's interesting is he was able to come back around to having this conversation, to apologizing in his own way when he was co confronted by his own death. Uh, after he was diagnosed with cancer um, two years before he actually died uh, was the moment of clarity for him. Um, so it, in some ways it's really full circle. There is this profound space that um, at the end of our lives or at the moment of death, being confronted by it either way, that gives us clarity of what actually matters. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it was a little too late um, but I'm grateful that it happened, that the reconciliation happened, and that conversation um, happened. Uh, but it, there's also just a lament there as well mm -hmm. that it didn't it didn't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
It's interesting that in a book where the subtitle is you know, mutual flourishing is, is mm-hmm. central to the idea of this book, death uh, functions as a kind of orienting aspect of it, right? It helps to clarify, to illuminate the importance of this mutual flourishing, of this idea of, no, we have to grow and seek life together. Mm. Well, I think that's the thing is that I think for both of us, while I think we feel, we both felt the absence um, of our our parents um, profoundly, we also are products of marriages that were not mutually flourishing, um, where there was a lot of pain. So my my parents that were divorced when I was eight, my father was an alcoholic. Um, and, you know, in a, in a weird way, they were both, they remained best friends, which was al- always a little strange, but um, they just weren't healthy together. And it wasn't until he got, until he got cancer and sick that they actually re remarried, reconciled um, oh, wow. in their last few, few years. Um, and Gail will say, you know, that even though her parents remained married, you know, that was not a, that was not a healthy relationship. And so this idea that, you know, death is simple, the death and absence is the worst thing or the opposite of flourishing. Mm-hmm. I think both of us have lived, both of us have lived lives where you were, you recognize that you could live and not flourish. Like mm-hmm. you could live in spaces of death, um, even even in the midst of, the, of those who are present, like lo- when loved ones are present. Um, and so at the same time, you also can't live afraid of death either because it comes, it comes for you whether you like it or not. Um, and in some ways it's what gives your life a kind of meaning because neither of us want to get to the end of our life regretting what we did or not having had tried, not having enjoyed one another or tried to make space for one another. Um, and so death is so death isn't necessarily the opposite of flourishing. The, the, the question is whether or not a death, the death marks of a life that has flourished. Um, whether or not we can live towards that, um, whether whether or not in our death we can say our lives brought life to others. It's interesting that as we think about this, both of your parents uh, encountered something later in life, you know, cancer is what's, what is brought up in your story. It's not always cancer, but cancer is brought up as something that marked them enough to have them consider a change, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes up as a second kind of sub-theme of your book, death comes up often later in the book. Gail, you, you talk quite openly about, you know, three miscarriages early in your, in your marriage. I mean, th- these things come up as kind of interwoven themes, death and then change, you know, Right there, the second surprise, first two words of chapter one, people change. This is chapter one. This isn't talking about, you know, later in the book, but we're talking later in marriage. No, right out of the gate, people change. And this has already come up with with the story of your parents. It's a central point of the book. I want to read a little excerpt from the book, and then I thought we can talk about it uh, together. Uh, so, So here's the excerpt. It says, this is from chapter three. It says, in a relationship where two people share the mundane and the life-changing, learning the other person is always going to be a process of recalibrating the tools we use to see and understand who this person is. But in this case, we are the tool. And like trying to observe the stars in the sky, we always have to adjust for the fact that we sit on a spinning marble of rock and are constantly moving. The seasons shift, the weather changes, and through it all, we're trying to discern the same stars. My question is, what have you learned about stargazing? As you, as you think of it as a kind of metaphor for learning each other, what have you learned about stargazing? You know, if you think about like kind of stargazing, you, you're trying to find points of orientation in the midst of the shift. So, but even then, it's not necessarily what are the things that don't change? It's in a sense, what are the things that you can always find? Right. So this so this star, this constellation, it might be in a different point in the sky, you know, depending on the season, but you're always going to be able to find it. And when you find it, you can figure out where you are in relationship to these other stars. And so I think when we're thinking about learning one another, that that's part of you kind of figure out, oh, wait a second, whenever whenever like money's real tight, jobs stressful. You know, Brian is going into his hole. <laughs> like that, that's a that's a commonality, right? Uh, that's a kind of point of orientation. Or 
um, oh, whenever these things happen, this person is doing that. So you're kind of learning some of these signs, you kind of to, to orient yourself to a person, but at the same time, maybe the kind of points of withdrawal, for example, for me in stressful moments or ways that Gail kind of engages in moments of stress, that will sometimes look different, right? And so, so part of this idea of, of kind of change and orientation is beginning to kind of see the patterns of the ways that people live their life, um, the ways that people respond to us, um, and how those things begin to shift and change in different circumstances, but always knowing that it's it's not always going to be the same thing. Um, it's not all going to be the same aspect. It's not going to always be the same practice. Um, that we kind of grow and learn, and so there's always there's always a kind of relearning of the person, a reorientation again and again and again. Um, you know, almost as though like you knew you always knew where Ryan was when you were when we were in Seattle, but if we moved to um, Zimbabwe, you know, we'd have to we'd have to reorient ourselves again to figure out both who we are in that space and who our partner is in the space. As an aside, it blows my mind that your starting place is suburban life, Southern Baptist pastor. Like that's the starting vision for you. <laughs> I was like, what? I've never met that Bantam. And you never will. Thank God. <laughs> they, they, they died, <laughs> speaking of death. I would say for, uh, for me, one of the things that um, the stargazing analogy is beautiful for me in the sense that um, it's a recognition that it's always going to be there, whether we recognize it or not. Stars are always present. Um, Brian's reality in every season is is there. It's changing. It's evolving. It's spinning. It's shining. It's hiding. It's it's more a question for me. Am I going to choose to see it? Am I am I going to acknowledge that it's it's um, that he's evolving, or that he's changing with the environment, with the circumstances that we're met with? Um, there's a there's a staff person that I work with who actually framed change in a really beautiful way, and kind of a simple way in that we expect change from children as they're growing, but somehow when you reach this this mystical magical number somehow we're like static now, which I think any kind of created being, any kind of living thing is always morphing, is always changing. There's cycles of life and death inside of um, inside of a person. And I think for me, it's a reminder, am I willing to see it? Because it's, hap it's, it's already happening and it's already present. Let me ask about how it is that that change takes place because of the relationship that you're in with one another. It's a little different than stargazing, right? Because yeah. a star doesn't interact with me. Um, but you are interacting with each other in the midst of the evolving and so on and so forth. When is it and how is it appropriate that we, um, how is it that the everyday causes us to bring each other to places of growth? Um, how is it that living with you and seeing your patterns of life kind of teach me, hey, you know what, Elizabeth, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to respond this way. You could learn from, you know, your spouse and learn this other way, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so when does, how does that take place? Because that's part of it too. It's not just that uh, Gail is, um, gazing Brian as he goes through whatever, um, Gail is interacting with Brian and she may not like some of what Brian does, or she may like some of what, you know, some of the change that's taking place. What happens there to affirm? What happens there to um, uh, very nicely slapping him upside his head sometimes? Mm -hmm. So um, he could see something that uh, otherwise someone else isn't going to tell him. And you're the closest person to him and the only person who has access to being able to tell him that. What happens mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. I would say a couple really tangible um, examples in throughout our lives. I would say, you know, especially having three young mixed 
um, boys that we've raised, whenever we go out in public, I noticed, especially when we used to live down in the South, in North Carolina, we would go vacation in South Carolina, in Myrtle Beach. But every time I was with them and we would go into a store, I would get so nervous because they would get followed. Yeah, and so I would have to account. I see it all happening. Sometimes they're oblivious to it because they're in the moment. And I have to actually use my body to check mm -hmm. and to intervene. Mm -hmm. um, and then after we leave the store, I was like, did you see the way the woman was following you and the boys? And um, Or I would get hypersensitive and say to the boys, don't touch, don't touch anything. Just, we're just walking through. Um, and so I, I find that my non-blackness, my privilege, in my body that I carry um, acts as an advocate many times for, for Brian and for my boys. Um, the other spaces that I catch myself kind of helping to correct Brian um, is probably in spaces where I notice that people pay more attention to what he says in a room of mixed company uh, especially men will kind of go to Brian for a final check. Um, he's and the EF Hutton in the room because he's male. That's right. Um, and he's academic, all the different things that his body kind of holds. And sometimes afterwards I have to kind of say, Hey, like, did you see what people were doing? Or, um, did yeah, you invite me into the conversation or some of the yeah. other disempowered people in the conversation. Yeah, and that was like earlier in our marriage and we would have lots of conversations about that. And I was also very um, insecure a lot of times around him and his colleagues. Um, and over time, I think he's kind of internalized that. And um, But those were, those were hard conversations to have mm -hmm. and to notice. Mm -hmm. The word internalize that is a very important word, right? Mm -hmm. um, the relational is transformational when we can yeah. internalize. Yeah. We internalize one another. We internalize each other's voices. We internalize uh, the experience that someone brings to us, the perspective. And then we're able to be in that space again very differently because we've internalized the person. So even if you're not there necessarily, I bet you Brian still remembers what you said and he also has internalized mm -hmm. what took place in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And what I see in him is it's now reached beyond me. He does it for his um, colleagues at work. He's one of the greatest advocates, um, especially for women of color. And I see that at work, especially now that we've been working at home. I, I listen in on his conversations. And yeah, I mean, change, right? Um, ever evolving. I want to ask two questions about change and I want to stay on the subject for a bit here. One that, that I didn't think about beforehand, but it's coming up as we talk here. You're thinking about your boys, you're thinking about your bodies and how those are read, right? Uh, there was some changing kind of self understandings about, about your bodies as you were interacting with the world around you as, as two married people. Brian, I, I found it interesting a couple of times throughout the book, you mentioned it kind of jokey, but but also in truth that that you felt like Gail was blacker than you, right? And and Gail has a kind of uh, relationship to the black church tradition that perhaps was uh, dissonant or maybe disorienting. Maybe that's the better word, disorienting as you encountered her. And then vice versa, you also had to kind of learn. And and Gail, you've had to think through your relationship with the migrant Korean church. And so, talk to me about how you you continue to evolve and negotiate these spaces together as we're thinking about change. Well, it's interesting because I mean, in the same way that, you know, Elizabeth, you kind of noted like these, we, when you're with another person, you're interacting with another person, there's also that moment of self-reflection of, and I think especially when we move, when we kind of moved into um, black spaces, especially, I think one of the things that I always noted was was the profound sense of comfort and centeredness that Gail had 
in those spaces. Um, you know, she she got the jokes, she kind of understood the musical references. Like, and for me, it was a kind of slower period of, of learning. Um, and at that point, it's also, but then in that moment, you also kind of feel those insecurities, right? And then there's kind of two, two opportunities. You can either like, the insecurities can cause you to avoid the spaces, which was what, which was one way that I sometimes um, handle the situation, or to ask yourself, why am I feeling insecure? What is it that I'm feeling nervous about? Um, and, and and so that that insecurity for me was a way of asking myself, what is how am I black? What is my what is my relationship to the black community? Um, and so that was began a journey of kind of understanding both the most coming into an, a greater understanding of the multiplicity of what it meant to be black, um, but also the responsibility of what it meant to be black. That even though I might have been coming into a kind of, I had a, a certain amount of uncertainty of that relationship when I was sitting with students as a TA at Duke, you know, they, I was their black TA, um, especially for the black students. Like I was their TA, um, I was there for them. And so realizing that, you know, on the one hand, there's also, there's, there might be a kind of suspicion in some spaces. I also had to come to realize the ways that my body was working as a talisman, as an icon, as a point of reference about what could be possible. Um, and that I also had a responsibility to the community as well. Um, and in the, in the uniqueness of my own story, that that was what it meant to be Black. Um, and so part of it was kind of getting rid of these ideas of not enoughness and realizing the ways that I embody it is what it means to be Black um, and what it means to be Black for me. And it's what I had to struggle to kind of help to convey to my boys because in a way they're now removed even more in terms of their own skin color, their hair, you know, the community that they grew up in, the kind of confusion when you add the layer of being Korean. Um, so when I say, yo, you're black, and they're like, dad, I don't really understand what that means. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but I'm just helping them to see that there's a kind of connection to a people that they hold in their body, regardless of whether or not they always feel it. What's really important about this is that coming to love each other is not like what is represented in any of the songs, in any of the movies because you have to understand that you're not just loving an individual, but you have to learn to love that person's peoples, the culture, the history, the multiplicities of what that means to belong to that community and so forth, because you're going to belong to each other and therefore to each other's peoples. That's right. right? And there was some trauma about your people's being able to accept one another. Um, mm -hmm. And so you can see that um, what we embody, as Emmanuel has brought up, is very important, right? Um, how the community turns around and looks at your boys and goes, oh, you know, they have a moment of figuring out the layers of complexity that it means to embrace these children as a part of their own community. That's right. At that That's point, right. right. And so that all of that is going on in people's heads as they're interacting and so forth. So you need to fall in love with each other's cultures and peoples and what that means if your relationship is going to work. Maybe you could say a little more to that, or maybe you want to push back and say, "No, nah, Elizabeth, you're 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 going up the wrong path." Say it in reference to food, because it comes up related to food in the book. Well, I, I mean, I'll say that, I, and I think that that's that falling in love with the community is is complicated, because mm -hmm. um, I know, and I'll and I'll speak for Gail, and maybe Gail, if you want to kind of pick up a little bit on the story. So part of what I had to learn was, you know, I'm dating this Korean girl. I just happened to also be, you know, visiting a Korean church as part of my kind of undergrad church experience. And I'm learning about the whole, like, you know, after service lunch and kimchi and bulgogi and, <laughs> and all the hominis, like in the back of the kitchen, 
you know, throwing this all this together while everybody is 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 worshiping in the in church during the and service. And they're trying to navigate those chopsticks too, right, bro? Right. Again, I'm trying I'm to get that seaweed to wrap itself I'm around a, the rice. I'm like two. I'm two handing it, trying to like pick it up. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm scooping it into my mouth with like a with the thing with the bowl, yeah. And so, and now I'm dating. So I'm dating this Korean woman, and and all of a sudden I'm like I'm like all excited because I feel like I have these points of reference, like these kind of points of commonality. And as we're talking, Gail's like, yeah, you know, that was the, like, you know, like all the women are just cooking. And I was like, oh, wait, what? Um, and so then I go back and I, oh, wait a second. Yeah, actually all the women, the women aren't worshiping. You know, there's a lot of them who are, who are cooking. And then Gail starts to tell me stories about the ways that, you know, people asked her about, you know, are you really Korean? You know, are you really this? And the, the story of her mother's struggle to find, to, to, to live into her call um, and the kind of pushback. And so the kind of inherent patri patriarchy, obviously the racism um, and anti-blackness that oh, like always, I both love this culture and, the, and I see the ways that it's living inside of Gail constantly, but it's also complicated um, and, and fraught in lots of ways too. Yeah, and I think just um, identity in the Korean community is, is very complicated, especially as a woman. Uh, and my mother was a pastor and, you know, if I, I wish she was around so I can actually see how she is in her adult, um, just, I, I feel like I'm a lot like her, just really strong woman, centered, outspoken, which is antithetical to, you know, my parents' generation of how a woman should act. Um, I remember I that in the Korean community at all. Yeah, and I remember my dad even teaching me how to laugh, like don't laugh so loud, cover your mouth. Women cover their mouth when they laugh. And I was like, that is not me. So I struggled with my identity. Am I Korean enough? And you know, the older the older generation would actually ask me a lot. You know, are you mixed? Like in the Korean church, they would actually ask if I was mixed. Um, but it, it's interesting because. It's who I am. And when we get into kind of conversations or tiffs about Korean culture, I fiercely protect it. So one of my boys just loves to like eat like a Korean. And what that means is Koreans just eat loud. We enjoy our, when your body you expresses, yes. yes. You Brian, those rules, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Brian, from his cultural background, his family background, that's like not, that's not cool. It's gross. So you eat with your mouth closed, you're quiet. And he literally turned to my son and said, You eat the way you eat you in the master's so house. Right. And so I correct, I was like, Babe, he is eating like a Korean. Let that boy enjoy his food. Right and like I found it like rising up in me. Don't you dare quiet my son. He is enjoying his noodles. Let him eat. I'm laughing here in the background. I should clarify because y'all can see me, even though the podcaster, podcast listener can't. I'm laughing because this is currently an argument between my wife and I. She likes to enjoy her food. And I'm like, yo, you can chill, you know, like <laughs> so we're having to negotiate this Southern and the this like Puerto Rican who wants to be real proper and ridiculous. You know, I, I want to appropriate a line from the book to to kind of frame what we're talking about here. I'm going to use it very differently than than how the line is written in the book. But th there's this line from Brian here you're talking about arguments that you've had with Gail. So maybe maybe it does fit here in terms of the argument about how how your boy is eating. But Brian you wrote I was lost in my own interpretation of our lives. That's the line. And I wonder how our communities, the black community, the Korean migrant community here in the US I wonder how we as communities can be lost in our own interpretation of our lives, of what it means to be Korean, of what it means to be Black, and how that shapes this not enoughness that we're talking about. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how we might recognize when we're lost in our own interpretations and how we might challenge those, those ways in which we've gotten lost. Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, and, I, and so a lot of the work that I do is around identity and how we build identity, um, but whether individually or as communities. And we, 
we have like certain markers of like, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And especially for marginalized communities, that becomes even more important because dominant culture tries to strip those things away, right? It tries to make us eat proper. It tries to make us, you know, like say certain words or suppress certain ways of being. And so in response to those kinds of pressures, there's less and less room for variation, right? Uh, There's less and less room sometimes for multiplicity. Um, And so when we're kind of confronted with Uh, an instance of a person who looks like us, but doesn't act like us, right? Then sometimes that can become a kind of question. Um, So I guess this question of like, how do you know when you're kind of lost in your own interpretation is, you know, when you fail to recognize the multiplicity of your community, Um, when Mm. you fail, when you, when you start, when you start using words like we've always done it like this, right? Or this is what it means to be X or this is what it means to be Y. Uh, Because the reality is you probably have not always done it like that. There's probably been a history. Um, There's probably been a point when that started and there was probably a very good reason for why it started. Um, And that slowly gets adopted into a kind of tradition Right, that then gets repeated over and over again. And I think for Gail and I, kind of being together in these kind of in-between spaces, I think we've actually had to rediscover what some of those traditions are and why they, why we do them um, in certain ways, why we have a certain posture to the world. But for us, because of the nature of our, of our in-betweenness and our mixed marriage, you know, there's no such thing as like, oh, this is what it means to do this. Like for our boys, like there's no way to be mixed because they can't repeat the, the the particular mixture that is their their parents. They have to they have to figure it out on their own, um, and so they have to live more kind of open-handed, if you will, uh, to change into the world. Um, but yeah, see, I think that's probably always to me the telltale sign is when a community starts to invoke this is how we've always done it, or you're not doing X, so therefore you're not X why um always perks my ears up a little bit it's like oh i wonder what's going on here you know it's interesting because um that's what essentialism looks like right Mm -hmm. cultural essentialism and in reality culture is always fluid and um our mixed children contribute to that fluidity Mm-hmm. They are a part of a culture. It's a culture that's emerging. Mm-hmm. And rather than looking at the not enoughness, we look at what they have a lot of. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Spanish, we say, cada moneda tiene dos lados. Every coin has two sides. Mm-hmm. So that what looks like a weakness is really a strength. So the not enoughness, what would be the other side of that coin, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a more than enough. Yeah, It's an abundance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because they, they're able, throughout the years, slowly, yeah. they're able to capture from both and to create this newness of something. Mm-hmm. And they're able to function and to navigate not only those two cultures that they're a part of, but they now understand writ large how to navigate cultures in a lot of different ways, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, My son was uh, in the military and he was um, working in the chaplain's office. And one of the things that the chaplain does is he or she is the person who creates diplomacy. Um, A lot of people don't know that about military um, chaplains, but they have to create the diplomacy and so forth. And he was in charge of doing a lot of that. And he's out in Kuwait and Afghanistan. And he's having, he was the person who picked up, he knew what were the essential words in the language that he needed to be able to master and to hear and recognize in the conversation beyond a translator. He knew how to find uh, red flag pieces. 
He knew how to read body language. He knew enough to look for certain things. He's navigating culture. He knew how mm. to sit down with people and listen um, and mirror the culture that he was with. And people began to really relate to him, even though it's the chaplain who's supposed to be the and the chaplain finally recognized that and said, you know, why don't you just take it from here? Mm. Because he had the skills for navigating mm. cultural pieces, for knowing when to listen, to for knowing what to say, what to ask, as mm. they were trying to negotiate some really, you know, um, some really difficult pieces, right, between militaries mm. and so forth. How did he learn that? Well, because of the not enoughness but the more than that he was yeah. getting, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And if we sit with them and reflect about those pieces, you see, as they're becoming adults, then they can use that as a way of navigating cultures and helping cultures to navigate with each other. Because mm -hmm. the world is becoming more and more a place where we keep bumping into one another and we have to make those significant interactions so that we can all have a common life that flourishes. Mm. And that's a calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? But yeah. it's and it's not something that you say, this is your calling, you know, when you throw this heavy <laughs> mantle on them and they can't, you know, they fall to the ground because it's so heavy. No, it's just something that, you know, sort of springs up with them naturally. You know, I used to always think that my displacedness growing up, um, not really feeling welcome in my with my own people, and then feeling a sense of belonging in the Black church and Black community, but all the while knowing I'm not Black, and definitely not feeling, you know, welcome or seen in white communities, uh, just always feeling in between. I always thought that that was a detriment. But it's only in recent years, as I'm pastoring a multi-church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial church, that I actually feel at home. And it's the it's the the experiences of being fluid, of being culturally adept, of knowing different ways of interacting with different kinds of people that I I truly believe is the other side of the coin of being able to lead a context that can be fluid, that welcomes other people who feel like they don't belong and who are in that in-between space as well. Absolutely, and that's real different than being a pastor where you have a lot of people who come from different places, but mm -hmm. as pastor, as lead pastor, you, you really don't know how to make that happen. Um, right. And you're describing the fact that you understand it and you can lead others in doing it. And that's the kind of true multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial church that we need. It's a whole lot of growing together and navigating that together. It's not an easy process, but we need leaders such as yourself who are able to understand what that takes. So I'm I want to ask. I'm glad, I'm glad for both of you. Amen. That I want I want to ask happen. about that because you know, Gail, from a pastoral perspective, so I'm going to direct the question at you here. You write something that I really appreciate in the book and was really challenged by. Uh, I guess I don't know which one of you wrote it, but there's something in the book that uh, challenges the over-romanticization. Uh, romanticization, is that how you say that? Um, the over-romantic expression or understanding of interracial marriage, right? Mm -hmm. First, you note, right, the rates of inter intermarriage are highest for Asian American women and Hispanic people. Both of these groups are most likely to marry white persons, right? Uh, and then you go through and, and you offer a kind of um, a challenge to re-examine, right? And there's this quote here. I want to read it. It would be easy to overlook the questions about why we married who we married, It'd be easy to overlook these questions, these lingering realities, and to cling to the idea that your interracial marriage is a sign of reconciliation and getting past race. So mm -hmm. you rightly, I think, challenge a kind of romantic understanding or overly romantic understanding of what's happening in these multiracial, in-between, mixed spaces. And I wonder from a pastoral perspective, 
how you how you talk to couples as they become aware of the ways in which white supremacy has shaped their relationship. I wonder mm -hmm. what you say to them in guiding them as they kind of come to and go, oh, wow, it's not just, you know, roses and, and reconciliation. There's there's something that drove us here. What's, mm -hmm. what's the pastoral response there? Yeah, and I think in a multi-church and with us being interracial, we get a lot of folks that come for pastoral care or premarital kind of counseling in their in their interracial relationships. And um Oftentimes, I I will prod a little bit, especially when one of the persons is white. Um, have you done the interior? Have you interrogated yourself in your identity and the why? What actually brought you together? Um, and so I'll share, for instance, how Brian and I came together was because we had a sense of commonality in our in-betweenness as a second generation Korean who didn't feel like I belong, was riding the line in multiple different communities. Brian as a mixed, black mixed man. That's what brought us together. I feel like people should be able to articulate what it is that, what's that commonality? What are you trying to actually overcome? Or what are you, what are you running away from is also another question I ask. Um, and if people can't be honest with those with those questions and their answers to it, um, I will always say, hey, there might be deep love right now, very profound love, and it's real, but you need to watch out for X, Y, Z in the years to come. And especially if you want to have children, what is that going to look like? What um, have you accounted for their identity? And so sometimes they get ruffled by it. We actually, I'm thinking of one particular couple um, when they're when they're navigating, you know, he finally in his blackness found his place, his vocation in a multi-setting. And the wife who was white just wasn't comfortable and wanted them both to work in, the, in a predominantly white space. And even though he was challenged by going back to another all white space, she, she was unable incapable of fathoming why that would be hard for him if they were going to be working together. Yeah. Um, and that was a hard conversation to have with them. Um, yeah. Brian might have some other thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, so part of it is too, is, you know, it's always tricky because folks, you know, they're all, they're already in love, you know, they see their whole life together. They maybe already are, are married, but even so in, in another way, we, we've often walked with um, men of color, oftentimes black men who have not married black women. Um, and, you know, and, and so maybe it's an Asian woman, maybe it's a white woman, maybe it's, and, and again, it's, it's a very, it's a tender relationship tender kind of topic, but you always have to ask yourself, you know, what is it that you were looking for? Um, and having to kind of interrogate those those kind of questions a little bit. Um, if not so much for that relationship, but for the kids especially, right? Mm -hmm. um, understanding like that you have to have a kind of awareness of the work that your body is doing in the world. And then for the partner to understand the work that the experience, especially of, in the cases of these cases of the black men, right? Especially in the midst of, you know, summer after summer of black violence, that was a really big conversation where these black men were going through it. And they were with partners who, who I think, you know, understood on an intellectual level, right? But but it was really hard for them to kind of make that leap to understand what it meant to be present with them in those ways. Um, and so I think part of that's, and that's kind of always the challenges of how do you, how does that love create the possibilities of transformation for both people um, so that they can be present to one another. But I think the other part of this is like, as we counsel couples and thinking about marriage as being more than just for the two people who are involved is that there also creates a possibility of in those relationships, in that transformation, in that internal work that we do, when we go out into our vocations, go out into the world, into our communities, coaching sports or, um, you know, guiding tours, whatever it is that we do, it also creates the possibility that we can also have 
eyes to see other people's experiences, kind of like yeah. Elizabeth, as, as you were saying, um, because of our experience with the partner. So I, I've learned a lot about Korean American experiences in their multiplicity and what it means to be present for them in a particular kind of way. Not that I'm an expert, but it means that I actually have a kind of eyes to see something different. I have eyes to see women's experiences different because of my relationship with Gail. Um, and even more than that, I have a kind of eyes to, to introspect a little bit, to ask myself, what are, what are my tendencies that are always not so helpful in a moment? And how do I begin to guard against those? Um, going along the way. So, so these kinds of, this kind of work is never just about the two people involved. It's really about how these two people become present and transforming presences in their communities and whatever it is that they're called to. Marriage is about generativity. Mm -hmm. Yes. And not just generativity because, you know, we have kids in our own household, but um, people see you. And you're interacting in the world in a lot of different ways as you have both identified and you're creating a world. Mm -hmm. So marriage is about the generativity of creating a new world mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. learning how to walk with one another through the many uh, emerging changes of the world, ourselves is, is a difficult piece. And so, mm -hmm. Love is can be infatuation. A lot of people, when I say infatuation, is, oh, I'm in love with this person. Yeah. Um, how do you know how to care for this person? Yeah. What are the stories about this person that you know? How do you problem solve together? What are the things that you don't like about this person and that you know never change about this person, but you're willing to live with? And if you're not, then you're not able to move into a commitment, right? And we don't ask mm -hmm. those kinds of questions when we're yeah. there. You're changing the world because of who you embody, because of who you are, because of who you are emerging, evolving to be, because of who your children are. It's, it's a changing of the world. And that makes it threatening in some uh, contexts. And that's why we move toward becoming... Uh, pretty sensitive to it and don't touch that, et cetera, right? As you just said, right. Gil, because we're protecting. We understand when there are people in the world who need that tradition and all of a sudden, all of who we represent changes that for them and it becomes very intimidating, right? Mm -hmm. We're changing the world. You two are changing the world. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. As we wrap, I have one silly question that I don't want to leave without asking because it came up in the book and it's just too funny for me to resist. <laughs> Brian talked about writing terrible poetry as a kid. I'm wondering, Gail, if you have a favorite line from any of his terrible poems that you've heard or read, if those even you exist. Know, I don't even think they exist anymore. He he barely showed me any of his writings when he was younger and they're probably too bad to even like publicly air. Oh, you they're, even think they might be bad. Wow. I'm pretty sure they're bad. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I might have an old literary magazine that I, I helped to edit laying like in a, in a bookshelf somewhere, but I want to, I'm going to let it stay lost. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. Well, Hey, thank you so much to both of you for writing this mm -hmm. book for being honest in your reflections. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, Gail, you have the, the, the glass bulb and the rubber ball metaphor mm -hmm. that uh, I encourage people, especially women who are, who are pursuing their call and living into their vocation and men who need to reconsider how they think about uh, women exercising or pursuing their call. I think that the ways that you guys talk about this metaphor shift between balancing all things is really important. So make sure to get the book, Choosing Us, Marriage and Mutual Flourishing in a World of Difference. Before we wrap up, let me tell you that our next episode for the Mestizo podcast will actually be a really important conversation with Dr. Liz Rios and her husband, Iram Rios, uh, where we discuss 
the dynamics of raising a differently abled child while managing a very public ministry. Uh, so we'll be talking about their life raising DJ. Uh, again, if you have questions about the conversation that we've had with the Bantams today, you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Follow us at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Follow the Bantams as well. Do you guys have your handles already ready? Can you say them out real quick? Mine's Gail Song Bantam across the board. Easy. I'm uh, Prof BKB on Instagram and Brian Bantam on Facebook and Twitter. BKB, what's the K? Keith. Keith. <laughs> kind of embarrassed about it. But, you know. I should not have laughed, but all right. No, like that's, that's <laughs> why. That's why I don't go around calling myself Brian Keith Bantam. Right. Just, Brian, just Brian Bantam. Well, thank you, Keith. Thank you, guess Bantam for joining. No, that's wrong, man. I'm failing you now. <laughs> hey, can I you say one a, thing? And don't... With me. <laughs> yeah, true, true. I got to be careful here. <laughs> go ahead, Gail. Can I say one thing? Don't edit this out. I just, um, I want to say how grateful I am to be joined with Dr. Condi Frazier. I've always wanted to meet you. And it is an honor, even via technology, uh, to be with you today. Uh, just a true honor. So thank you. And I'm glad we were able to make space together. Me too. Me too. Well, it's been my honor to hear both of you. You're doing important, embodied, and um, just real work for the society that we live in right now. But we also need to keep you all in prayer because um, it's vulnerable work. It's vulnerable work. We have to recognize that. So thank you. Mm, thank you. And on that, se acabó.